Fifth, my fifth point, my fifth observation on the function of the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Covenant is this, the Old Testament as well as the New Testament makes various distinctions between the Decalogue, you know sometimes I use that word without defining it, Decalogue means ten, deca and logos, log, ten words, there is at least one place in the Old Testament where what we call the Ten Commandments is reduced to this phrase, ten words. So the ten words, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Old Testament as well as the New Testament makes distinctions between the Decalogue and other Mosaic laws. You've heard of the threefold division of the law. That's the threefold division of the law of Moses. Moral, ceremonial, judicial, or civil. You know, some people, especially in our day, say, well, that's concocted by someone's theology and imposed back onto the text. And so the Mosaic law is just one big glob of law. There's, you can't make distinctions. And so they deny the threefold division. I, I kind of simplified their, 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 the way they argue. But in, in, in one sense, that is the way they argue. But the Pentateuch, which, is, which means the five-scrolled book written by Moses, Moses, um, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, especially Exodus through Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch itself differentiates between the ten words, the Decalogue, and other Mosaic laws in various ways. For instance, ten words, that's in Exodus 34.28, Deuteronomy 4.13, and 10.4. The ten words... Uh, uh, are the Ten Commandments. So that's Old Testament, Mosaic, Pentateuchal language. The ten words are also called those that were written with the finger of God on stone tablets. Okay, So that sets them apart from what Moses wrote that we still call the Law of God or the Law of Moses because these were written with the finger of God on stone tablets, Exodus 31.18, Exodus 34.1, and a couple Deuteronomy passages as well. But also, the uh, distinction between the Decalogue and other Mosaic laws is seen in this way. The Decalogue sometimes is called the covenant, just by itself. It's just called the covenant. Also, the Decalogue, or the stone, that which was written on stone tablets and the tablets themselves, are put in the Ark of the Covenant, not beside it. So there's distinction as well. You have the Book of the Law, that which Moses wrote, on the one hand, uh, beside the Ark of the Covenant. This is uh, Exodus 25 and Deuteronomy 31. And then you have that which was put in the Ark of the Covenant, the stone tablets. So the Pentateuch also distinguishes between laws in the book of Deuteronomy itself. I'm going to look at some of these passages. If you want to look in Deuteronomy, you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And I'm arguing this, that in the book of Deuteronomy, which is one of the books in the Pentateuch, we see distinctions made between laws, different types of them. Deuteronomy 4.5 is the first text. Surely I have taught you, here we go, statutes and judgments, just as the Lord, this is Moses speaking, surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them 
in the land which you go to possess. Now that's interesting. You got statutes and judgments that God revealed to me and I, I am passing them on to you that are to be applied in the land which you go to possess. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 13 and 14 is next. So he declared to you his covenant, that is the Lord declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. Here it is, the Ten Commandments. Oops, there's the Ten Commandments is called the covenants. And he wrote them, the Ten Commandments, on two tablets of stone, and the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments in distinction from the Ten Commandments written on the stone tablets, that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. So it seems like he's, well, he is. He's distinguishing between what God wrote on stone tablets and what God revealed to Moses that he's revealing to them, and I'll add to that, not necessarily to be applied or obeyed now, but in the land that they are going to. Deuteronomy 5.31 is another text. But as for you, stand here by me, this is the Lord speaking, and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments, which you shall teach them, that they may observe them, this is very clear, in the land which I am giving them to possess. So this is not the Ten Commandments. Remember, the Ten Commandments were revealed by the voice of God, by the finger of God, prior to them entering into the land. And now God is telling us through Moses and Moses and the people, God also revealed laws other than the Ten Commandments. These are to be applied when they finally get to the land. So that's interesting. Deuteronomy 6.1. Now this is the commandment. And these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. So you see what's happening? They they have the moral law, that which is written on stone tablets. It's applicable in some way, in some sense, to all people. And now they have positive laws added to the core, the the Ten Commandments, to be enjoined upon them once they get into the land. You know, there are, there's a very teensy sliver of Reformed Christianity, even in our day, that views the law of Moses as the universal law in all senses, except the ceremonial part, for all nations, for all time. But if you read it very carefully, this seems to be unique to Israel for the land. There are unique in the land laws here. These are not universally binding on all nations. So if Israel, as a covenant nation of God, comes into existence, gets its unique laws, some of which are unique to them as covenant, a covenant nation in the land of promise, and if that covenant fulfills its purpose and it's abrogated, what do you think about those kind of laws? They're probably done away with. Can we learn anything from those laws? Yeah. Should we? Yeah. Paul actually quotes it a weird, obscure places in the book of Deuteronomy sometimes, and maybe it's because it's in the context of of dealing with pastors, because they're kind of weird, so he goes this weird, obscure text in Deuteronomy 
and he applies a weird principle to, to pastors. So they're, they're still usable, they're still function, but they don't function as a paradigm for judicial laws for all nations under any and all circumstances. They were unique to Israel in the land, as we keep reading. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 1, some more distinctions by virtue of different terms and phrases uses, and even different places where laws are applicable to ancient Israel. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. Now notice that some laws revealed through Moses were to be observed in the land of promise, statutes and judgments, he uses the, that couplet of terms there, and all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments, that's just using the language that Moses use, used. Now what is of interest to note as well is that the Decalogue was delivered to the people prior to entering the land and was not restricted to the land. Does anybody here want to say no? It was revealed at Mount Sinai, which isn't in the promised land, but it, they, weren't, they didn't have to obey the Ten Commandments until they got to the promised land. I don't think anybody wants to say that. Matter of fact, um, I think you want to say, you know what, even before it was revealed by the voice of God and by the finger of God writing on stone tablets, it was already kind of a universal ethical norm for all creatures anyway, Right? So we've already seen that the commands of the Decalogue predate its promulgation, that technical word, formal public revelation. But the Decalogue is not the only part of the Mosaic law <clears throat> that was applicable outside the land. The laws revealed to, uh, the laws related to the tabernacle. If you want to read this, go home this afternoon, read Exodus 25 <clears throat> through Leviticus 7. That's basically tabernacle laws. They were also to be obeyed in the wilderness, though they did not predate Sinai. So here's what we have. We have the Ten Commandments predating Sinai. Then we have the Ten Commandments formally promulgated on Sinai. Then we have, in Exodus 25 to Leviticus 7, then we have laws that terminate upon the tabernacle. They don't predate Sinai. They're not moral law written on the heart. They're special laws added to the ten words as the covenant's being revealed to ancient Israel. They are to be enjoined or employed or obeyed in the wilderness before they get in the promised land. And then we have these other laws that they have, that they're getting revealed to them before they get to the promised land in the wilderness, just like the stone tablets, just like the laws with reference to the tabernacle. These are revealed before they get to the promised land, but they are not to be obeyed until they get into the promised land. See all those distinctions that are happening? So when I read some of Gordon's old professors at, at, at TED's, that are pushing back on, on the confessional reform distinction between the moral, ceremonial, and judicial aspects of the Mosaic Covenant. And when they say this stuff like this, oh, if you read the Bible, all it is, just, it's just the Mosaic Law. It's a big, it's, it's all or nothing. So when it goes, it all goes. I'm going, well, wait a minute. Some of what God reveals on Sinai predates Sinai. So it's not unique so as it functioned within Israel as God's old covenant nation, when it goes, 
the whole thing, the whole thing goes in that sense. I get that, but it has other functions in the Bible, the Ten Commandments. They don't just function as the heart, the, the apodictic center of the Mosaic Covenant's law. There's other functions. Matter of fact, there are different, differing Hebrew words here used that somewhat consistently, I said somewhat because my brain's not remembering everything such that I could say consistently all the way through. I think at least somewhat consistently, the Hebrew terms are used very carefully where in most instances, this uh, language like statutes and judgments doesn't refer to the stone tablets, but it refers to other things. And I think primarily the things that are to be done when they're in the land of promise. So these distinctions are borne by a careful reading of the scriptures themselves. What was my observation? Let me see if I can go back to it to remind myself. Oh, here you go. The Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, makes various distinctions between the Ten Commandments and other Mosaic laws. Now, when um, so, it's these observations that distinctions are being made by Moses himself, and then distinctions are made in the prophets in the Old Testament between uh, to obey is better than to sacrifice. Well, is sacrifice a bad thing? No. Is sacrifice or sacrifices commanded? Yes. But something about moral obedience to the moral law trumps even the sacrificial system. To obey is better than to sacrifice. Is that First Samuel 15, I think. But also it's in, it's in else, uh, other places in the, um, in the Old Testament as well as in the New. By the way, you remember this in Hosea 6.6? 6, 6? For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Wait a minute, don't you? You required burnt offerings. Yes, but burnt offerings are positive laws added for a period of time to the moral law, which is universally and always binding. That's more important than positive laws. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he even tells them, if you would have known what this meant, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have called me a Sabbath breaker. He references Hosea 6, 6. We'll get there some decade. The, the, the whole point is this. The distinctions made within the Pentateuch and the prophets, and I think, and our Lord and the apostles, we don't have time to cover all this, but someday, next time you read through the, the Bible, which I'm sure you do several times a year, think about these kinds of things. What are the, are, do they, are they distinguishing at all? If they are, I need to distinguish because they are God's penmen and they're distinguishing between certain types of law, and if they are inspired and therefore infallible, then I need to follow them. I need to think the way they're thinking. I need to follow in their footsteps. footsteps. So, um, so here we have these different categories of law, let's say. Um, our confession uses the language of Moral, ceremonial, and judicial. 
If you read our confession, I thought I had it quoted here someplace. I'm sure I do, but I can't find it. If you had our confession, you would see that our confession sees, I'm going to use a different word here, sees the ceremonial aspect and the judicial or civil aspect as supplemental to the ten words. Um, Another way of saying that is positive laws. Laws added to the moral law for a particular purpose at a particular point in time for a particular duration. Supplemental laws. So that we have the ceremonial and judicial law, the Mosaic Covenant being positive law, law added to the moral law for temporary redemptive historical purposes. Now, the language of John Owen's coming into my head, so I'll share it with you. He says redemptive historical appendages, I think. If you read the Old Testament and you believe in the perpetuity of the Ten Commandments, you see that the Ten Commandments take on a unique central apodictic function in the Mosaic Covenant. And then there are these redemptive historical appendages, things added to it, to help govern the people for a time to prepare the Messiah for the world. And so once the Messiah comes into the world, the things that were appended to it to help preserve ancient Israel as a body politic, as a national covenant people, in order that through their womb the Messiah would come, once the Messiah comes, what's cut off is all those appendages, all those redemptive historical additions. And so you're still left with what we call the law written on the heart. Still left with the ten words. The next question is, how do we apply them? If we don't apply them like them, how do we apply them? Which is is a good question. Some people say we can't apply the fourth commandment because uh, we're not Jews. Well, what about the second commandment? Um, Do we apply the second commandment? You shall not make for yourself idols. As Christians, do we apply that? We, we should. Most Christians would say, yeah, we're under the second commandment. Does it look the same as it did as uh, ancient Israel under their covenant? Does the application of the second commandment look the same as it used to? Do, 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 are the elements of public worship the same this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ as they were before the cross and the resurrection of Christ for the people, covenantal people of God? And the answer is No. It looks different, right? Public worship has different elements now. We don't have three annual festivals at a, a, the, the geographic place in ancient Israel called Jerusalem, up on a mountain called the temple. We don't have physical priests with physical animal sacrifice. We still have priests. We still have sacrifices. We've got women priests in our church, by the way, and all true churches. There are male and female priests. Saints are called priests, offering up spiritual sacrifices. So the perpetuity of the moral principle of the second commandment abides, is still with us. Its application looks different. Now, why does the application of the second commandment, this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ, look different? What's the Sunday school question? Uh, answer to all the questions? Jesus. You remember with Jesus in John 4, the woman on the well? Woman on the well. Woman at the well. That sounds, like a, that sounds like a church or something. On the well. At the well. Uh, 
He told her a day was coming where basically worship's going to change. Jews have their way. The Samaritans have their way. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship in spirit and in truth. You read the older commentators, they're saying the incarnate Son of God is saying, I'm going to change the elements of worship because the elements of worship, either prior to the coming or after the coming of Christ, either function as preparatory of and looking forward to or looking back to the accomplishment of it and forward to the eschatological state. The second commandment's moral principle abides. Its application, this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ, is conditioned upon the, uh, upon the, is conditioned upon the redemptive realities that our Lord has procured for us. And one of them is this. We no longer work than rest. We rest than work. Isn't that interesting? Before, it was work, then rest, patterned after God's work at creation. But now we rest and work. Why do you think it's rest, then work? First day worship, and then six days of labor. Because we're in Christ. He's already won our rest for us. So we work as a result of having already entered rest. We go out and work Monday through Saturday, not for our salvation, but to try to express our thankfulness in the common kingdom with other fallen but unredeemed creatures as well. If my wife was here, I'd say, where was I, honey? Well, we were making distinctions, right? That's what we were doing. That, that was the fifth observation. And I was looking for a quote of the confession uh, on the moral the threefold division. Anyway, the threefold division, I think, and I'm not the first one to think this, is based on the fact that the Bible itself makes distinctions between different types of law functioning under the Mosaic Covenant and views the principles of the ten words predating its formal promulgation. Here's what one, mass, one man says. What would Moses think? Remember the little bracelets, what would Jesus think? <laughs> He says, what would Moses think? If the Pentateuch represents what Moses thought, then the basic categories of the threefold division would not have left him in severe shock. The view that the laws of Moses are one indivisible whole finds no support in the Pentateuch. It's labeling of some laws as pattern laws, that is, laws related to the tabernacle, and others as statutes and ordinances to be observed in the land, those are primarily the judicial law, introduces discrimination, distinctions, while the Hebrew expressions for law distinguish the Ten Commandments from the rest of the Mosaic Code in certain contexts. Above all, the Decalogue's self-understood, divinely uttered, lapidary. What a great word. The first time I read that word and I said, I didn't say it out loud, but inside I'm going, I don't know what that word means. So you know what I did? Dictionary.com. Lapidary means that which is cut or engraved. Now you know. The lapidary law of God. That's what was written on stone tablets, okay? So he says, above all, the Decalogue self-understood, divinely uttered, lapidary apodictic. There's that technical word. Not case laws, 
dealing with all sorts of cultural things, but moral principles. Apodictic and constitutional status marks it out as a distinctive collection of laws. So that was, that was a contemporary scholar. He happens to be British and of the Westminster Confession of Faith tradition. But I, I think he's right. Some of you, at least one of you, I think have read, has read his book. If these are real distinctions, they're real distinctions. Okay, th- these aren't distinctions made up in the 17th century or made up by, even worse than that, Thomas Aquinas, because Aquinas has this distinction, and he's a late medieval Roman Catholic theologian. They, they didn't make it up. They're actually in the Hebrew text itself. It uses different terms. And it's also in the Hebrew, pro- the Hebrew text of the Pentateuch. And in the prophets themselves, they distinguish. They can see the difference between moral law and ceremonial law. Jesus comes on the scene. He sees the same thing. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. If you would have known what this meant, Hosea 6, 6, as our mercy rather than sacrifice, you wouldn't be accusing me of, I'm making a distinction here between Moral and positive law. Anyway, I'm not me, but Jesus. So the distinctions are real. They're in the scriptures. Subsequent writers make distinctions as well. The prophets, our Lord does. I think the apostles do as well. And we'll probably, hopefully, get there someday. So let's land this plane, maybe. Contemplation. We have to contemplate this. And I have three contemplations From the observations above, we conclude that the Decalogue, Ten Commandments, are included, are considered to be a unit, a a unique unit or body of ethics. Remember, the only, the two times we have them written uh, are Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Both times, it's unit. The rest of the time, it's just assumed. When they say 10 words, you know what it means. It means those 10 words, those. Ten laws, a unit. And that in a unique way, it was, we could call it the law of God, because only God spoke these words first. God etched them in stone twice. Then God had Moses write them in what we call the Bible. They're the fundamental, the basic law of the Old Covenant. And these, and it, the ten words, may and must be, because they are in Scripture, distinguished from other aspects of, of the Mosaic law. Now, do you see what happens when you don't do that? And you have anti-law texts in the New Testament. You know what happens? You become what people call an antinomian, anti-against, namas law. I'm against law altogether. Why? The New Testament has negative anti-law statements. Well, it does. But the New Testament has pronomian for law statements as well. When we read the pro-law statements, you know what some people do? Oh, the entire Old Testament law is our law as well. They're not distinguishing carefully. I've said this before. Francis Turretin, 17th century Paisan. He's not Mexican. He's Italian. I don't care what Francisco Orozco thinks. Francisco, I'll tell you this later. Francis Turretin says, we distinguished quite often in his three volumes. We distinguished. So-and-so says this. So-and-so says this. 
Well, the answer is, no, we've got to distinguish between types of law, or else we'll throw the entire law out and become antinomians, or we'll become lawholics and imbibe the whole thing. And you know, the, you know what the hardest issue is? It's not even the second commandment. It's the fourth commandment. It's the hardest one. How do you do that? Because they're pretty clear laws. We'll, we'll get there someday. Though the Decalogue is not exhaustive of Mosaic law, it is central to it, though predating it, and as we'll see in our, I think, next week, Laura, in two weeks, uh, the Decalogue is viewed as trans-covenantal as well. It doesn't just appear in one covenant, the older Mosaic covenant. It transcends uh, covenants. Jeremiah 31, 33 teaches the trans-covenantal utility of the Ten Commandments. I will put my law in their minds, not in the Ark of the Covenant, and write it, that is my law, on their hearts, not on stone tablets. That's talking about a day in the future when everybody in this, what's called New Covenant, when that covenant gets inaugurated by the shedding of blood, just like the first covenant was inaugurated by the shedding of blood, Exodus 24, 8. So the second covenant, or the New Covenant, is inaugurated by the shedding of the blood of The martyrs of Jesus on his behalf? No, by the shedding of the blood of Christ. Uh, The blood of the everlasting covenant, Hebrews 13, 20. Everyone in that covenant, upon its being historically inaugurated, has the same work of the law written, uh, put on their minds, written in their hearts. That's something done by God internal uh, to them. A second Contemplation. The first is that the transcovenantal utility of the Decalogue is taught by the Old Testament. The second is just as the old, just as the Ten Commandments functioned as the basic law of the Old Covenant, what's going to happen when this new covenant gets inaugurated? Well, the basic assumed no-brainer law of that covenant is going to be what? Something new? Or that which was actually written on Adam's heart and then rewritten by the work of regeneration on our hearts. You know, the fourth commandment's a big struggle, so let's work through that. Most people, when they get saved, you don't have to... Getting them to church isn't like pulling teeth at them, right? You want to go to church, at least you should. Uh, even if it's on a day that might be, in, culturally for you, inconvenient, Sunday, which that's becoming more and more prevalent in our day, that Sunday is an inconvenient day for some people. Isn't that terrible? Shouldn't be, but it is, for various reasons. But you don't have to convince them that you ought to go to church. Now, what usually people don't do is connect that to the fourth commandment. I, I, I do, and you should as well. You should connect it to the fourth commandment. God is regulating my time for me. Now, what I need from God is positive law added to the moral law written on my heart that gives me concrete ways to do certain things, like elements of worship. I can't just worship God according to my, the dictates of my heart, right? Who wants to do that? You worship God your way, and I'll worship him according to my heart. My heart's the problem in many senses, all right? Not the solution. So I need God to add to the moral law rewritten on my heart uh, positive laws that... that, that that direct me on how to apply those laws. So the basic fundamental apodictic law 
of the inaugurated new covenant, it, it ends up being the, the ten words. What that looks like will work out in the weeks and months to come. A third, so, so we could say this, those circumstances have changed cross-resurrection of Christ, new elements of worship, new day of worship. Those circumstances have changed. Basic right and wrong never changes. And our final contemplation is this, just as the Ten Commandments had various positive laws under the Mosaic Covenant with which they functioned, so the Ten Commandments have various positive laws under the New Covenant with which they function. Two of the obvious ones should be baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are positive laws revealed to us by the church's only lawgiver, our confession says, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be obeyed by his disciples from the time in which they were instituted. They're not moral laws, right? Did Adam and Eve take the Lord's Supper? No. It's a positive law. Enjoined upon someone, this would be the new covenant community of God's people, for a period of time for a specific purpose. Same thing with baptism. Um, Was Moses water baptized? Uh, No, this is a positive institution, a dominical institution. That is Latin for Lord, the Lord Jesus adds to the moral law certain positive laws uh, for a period of time for a distinct group of people. The, the old covenant's similar. The new covenant has, oh, here's something else that's positive, I think, for the new covenant, first day worship. You say, well, how was that instituted? He rose from the dead. Say, well, why, was, why is that important? It's the beginning of the new creation. Remember, I've said this before. John Owen says, pray tell. What would it take to change the day of worship? He says, well, a new creation. So we have a new creation signified by the resurrection of our, of our Savior on the first day of the week, and then his saved people rest on the first and work on the rest because the rest has already been won for them. So we have these positive commands. Think about the positive command of the, the, the Mosaic sacrificial system. The sacrificial system of the Mosaic covenant looked forward to what? The sacrifice of Christ, right? Read the book of Hebrews. It's, it's very clear. They had a function, and it terminated on the incarnate Son of God's sacrifice for us. They are, it was a distinct system of laws revealed at a particular time in history that had a particular purpose for a particular people that terminated in the sufferings and glory of Christ. So that we say the sacrificial system that was appended to the moral law in the Mosaic Covenant 
with the people of ancient Israel, ultimately in the promised land, had a temporary purpose that has been fulfilled. So since it's fulfilled, it's therefore abrogated. So in that sense, the older Mosaic covenant is gone. It no longer functions along with a sacrificial system to point forward to Christ. How could it? He's already come, right? So people that say, well, in the future, it's going to be re-inaugurated. You ever heard that? The sacrificial system is going to be re-inaugurated in the, what they call the millennium. You go, is it going to look forward to Christ or back? And they can say, well, it's going to look back to Christ. And you say, wait a minute. Show me in the Old Testament where the sacrificial system was designed to point back to the Christ who's already come. That's not the function of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, right? Sacrificial system of the Old Testament functions to point forward to the first coming and sufferings and glory of Christ. There are other positive laws that are designed to help us think back to his first coming, but it's not the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. It's both baptism and the Lord's Supper. Whereas the sacrificial system of the Mosaic Covenant looked forward to the sacrifice of Christ, our Lord's Supper looks back at the incarnation and sacrifice of Christ, right? So do this in remembrance of me, remembering that I have come, I have assumed human nature, I have suffered, I have died. Uh, uh, The nature... Uh, that was assumed is the nature that gets repaired, as the old patristic writer said. What does he assume? He has not come to help angels, but the seed of Abraham, I think the elect. By assuming not angelic nature, did our Lord assume angelic nature to bring angelic nature to glory by virtue of his righteousness in angelic nature and suffering wrath in angelic nature? No, he assumed human nature. And so the supper helps us look back at that of which the sacrificial system of the old covenant era looked forward to. Sacrificial system of the old covenant era was designed to look forward. The institution of the Lord's Supper was designed to look back. Do you think it has any eschatological overtones in it as well? Should we just look back and, you know, cry because Jesus died for us? Or should we say, you know what? He died in my nature. He assumed my nature. He assumed my duties. He assumed my liabilities in order that he might bring me to God. And even though he told the disciples, I'm not going to eat and drink this with you until... Remember when he said that? Until. What should that mean for us? There's still an until. That is, we're looking forward to something better than just the Lord's Supper. Whatever this feast is with the Lamb in his ultimate kingdom, we get that as well. So it not only looks back, it looks forward. So the Lord's Supper has a a, a backwards glance, the Lord's Supper has a forward glance, but the Lord's Supper should have a, a present glance as well, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, that we, that we have fellowship or communion in the body and blood of Christ. 
which sounds weird. But you know what sounds weirder? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, Jesus said that, you'll have no, you won't have life. Of course, if you keep reading John 6, it seems that that is synonymous with believing on Christ, eating and drinking. In other words, taking him as he is, believing his, his claim about who he was, That communion that Paul talks about is the present tense reality of the supper. Blessed by God, the benefits of Christ come to the people of Christ through the means that Christ has ordained. That's that's what we hope for and should pray for every time we take the Lord's Supper. Lord, may not just be bread and wine, or juice, if some of you drink the juice. May not just be bread and wine, but... May you bless the means, the visible, tangible, tasteable, seeable means to the well-being of our souls. Just as you take your word and make it profitable to our souls, take the bread, take the cup, and make it profitable for our souls. Because after this day of rest, we're going to go work for you, and boy, do I need, I need, I need my tank full. I need help, you know. Uh, and the means of grace are uh, the means through which God, God helps us. May he, may he help us all. May the words that are according to his word stick, and may the, all, all the others be blown out of our memories. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word. Sometimes like this, it's, it's tough sledding, difficult issues, hard to put a lot of things together, but you are able to bless your word to our souls in such a way that I can't, I can't make people uh, embrace these things and uh, I can't cause them to sort things out in the right order and manner, but you can. And that's what we pray for, that you would help us all to sort things out rightly in an orderly and scriptural manner, taking all factors that need to be factored in, taking them into consideration and drawing conclusions based on the data that we do have in Scripture. All of us are at various places and stages of ability to do that. As for some, this is old uh, information, just repackaged. For others, it's probably new information, and they never heard it before like this. But your truth abideth still. Your word is what we want to rule us by the gracious work of the Spirit in us. Do that and bless us as we partake of the supper, we believers in Christ Jesus, and we ask in his name, amen.